Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday to everyone. You guys look so nice today, by the way, as well. I see uh, some new uh, dresses. I see a sport coat or two out there. Uh, no ties, that'd be too much. We don't go too far with a tie. I mean, I mean, I mean it's, we are in the Pacific Northwest, although Drake does have a bow tie on. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll, go, we'll skip the tie, go straight to the bow tie this morning. All right, open up your Bibles, if you would. We're going to look in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and every year, you guys know this, right after, oh, some of you know this better than others, I should say, I don't even know how I know this, right after uh, Valentine's Day, uh, the trucks start heading off to uh, Target, they start heading off to Walmart, they start heading off to your favorite grocery store, loaded with Easter decorations. Uh, Easter gets started so early these days. And you've got your peeps, you've got your jelly beans, you've got your flowers, you've got your food preparations for, for Easter uh, meal afterwards. Somehow deviled eggs got on the menu. I don't know how deviled eggs got on the menu on, on Easter Sunday. You start planning for Easter, you start thinking about friends and family that's going to come over. Uh, you think about stuffing eggs. You think about the start possibly of spring break. Or the end of spring break. Every year a big deal is made out of Easter. And it's not just for believers. The entire world makes a big deal out of Easter. And they make a big deal out of Easter for all the wrong reasons. And sometimes those wrong reasons come and infiltrate into the church. And what we want to do is keep things very simple. And keep the main thing the main thing on Easter Sunday. And the main thing is the risen Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's nothing more than that, and it's certainly nothing less than that. Everything about Christianity hangs in the balance on Sunday morning after his death. Christianity will stand or Christianity will fall based on what happens on Easter Sunday. If Christ does not raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain and our Preaching is in vain. In fact, Paul even says we're the most pitied people on the planet if Christ does not raise from the grave. We have no hope. And we are nothing more than just believing a massive lie that has been told for centuries and centuries. But as we read in Luke Chapter 24, in our time of our, in our reading, the women went to the tomb. The, uh, Peter and John went running to the tomb. They looked inside the tomb. It was empty. The body of Christ was not there. He is not there. He is risen, and He is risen indeed. The men even asked, why are you even here looking for somebody who is alive in a tomb? He is risen. Death was defeated. Heaven, hope, eternal life is now possible because Christ has defeated death. And because he lives, we too will live forever. I love what Charles, Charles Spurgeon says about this, and I say this every, every year because I, I find this quote just so fascinating. He says this, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity. And the resurrection is the why. That's how important the resurrection is. 
And to help us understand the importance of the resurrection, I, I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. If you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you're familiar with this section of Scripture, and, and uh, maybe it's one of those ones where you're like, yeah, I got this one figured out. I've heard plenty of sermons on this section, so I'm just going to cash it in for the morning and uh, enjoy my spiral ham uh, for lunch afterwards. Let me just encourage you not to do that, but to think about this section in light of the resurrection. This is what it says. And you, Ephesians 2, verse 1, were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses here it is made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Familiar verse, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We pray for our time of study. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help now as we line up underneath the truth of your word. Father, to bring any understanding to what we just read, we need the Holy Spirit and we depend on the Spirit to teach us and to guide us, to draw our hearts to God's heart, to align our mind and our thinking to God's. We just want to be close to you and in sweet fellowship with our Savior. So please help us, Lord, as we study these words to do those things, to accomplish that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of this passage is this that God makes spiritually dead sinners alive in Christ. That's the main point. The subject of this section is clear. It's in verse 4. It's God. God is the, the main subject of this entire section. The main verbs in this section, there's three main verbs in this section, highlighted by the first one. The first main verb is this, is that He made us alive together with Christ. It is that he has seated us with him. It is in verse 6 that he has raised us up. Those are the, the three main verbs. God is the subject. The object of those three main verbs are believers. And in one really, really, really Paul-like sentence, one sentence, 124 words, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that the only way for us to attain salvation, the only way for us to be made alive together with Christ, seated in the heavenlies, is if God makes you alive spiritually. 
And so there's a simple outline for us that I want us to understand. There's just two points that I want us to understand, and there's going to be some subpoints. But these are the two main things that I want you to understand or see from this passage. The first thing that I want you to see from this passage is the spiritual condition of mankind. And then I want you to see the saving action of God. But first, the spiritual condition. Verse 1 to 3. Very clear. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is a, a very descriptive verse. And my guess is that it's not one that is found at Hobby Lobby that you can grab and place above your kitchen table. You do not place above your, Christian, your, your kitchen table a phrase that says, you are dead in your trespasses. You are children of wrath. <laughs> that's, that's not something that, that we enjoy hearing or we even want to hear. It's not something that you have, you have written down in a little note for a little pick-me-up when you've had a discouraging day. Nobody wants to be told that they're sinners. Nobody wants to be told that they're dead and their trespasses and sin. Nobody wants to know that by nature that we are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And so you say, Paul, what, what are you doing? What, what are you trying to get across to us? What are you saying to us? He, what, what Paul is doing is he is describing the spiritual condition of all of mankind. Dead. Dead to sin. Their soul is dead, spiritually unresponsive, without life, totally unable to make themselves come alive spiritually. The condition of man without Christ is that they are spiritually dead, walking dead, living dead. A shell of physical life with a dead, unresponsive soul. And since the very first sin of Adam, man has been trying for years, for centuries, for decades, for thousands of years, to try to find a way to make themselves come alive. They're trying to revive their own soul. They're trying to make themselves happy, make themselves satisfied, make themselves fulfilled. And my, man has tried everything under the sun to bring a dead man back to life. Humanism. Philosophy, enlightenment, education, success, entertainment, drinking, drugs, sex, power, position, prestige, living off of tradition. Man has tried everything, including looking deep inside themselves to find some sort of goodness that would spring forth life in their soul. The reality is this, that Paul wants to tell you is this, you're not mostly dead, you're entirely dead. Totally unable to bring life to your own soul. You can see this in recent days, the way that America has tried to bring life back to, uh, to its own people to try to solve life's problems. We see this with trying to solve the problem, problem of racism, the problem that exists within politics, social wars, the problem of injustice, the problem of debt, the problem of materialism, 
family problems, schooling problems, suicide problems, divorce problems, teenage suicide problems, depression problems. And America is trying everything, throwing everything at us to say, hey, let's fix this by changing this thing. Let's fix this by, by adding this law, changing this law, modifying this thing. There's got to be a way to bring life to, to the dead soul of man, and they're just trying everything. And all those problems that exist, and every other problem that exists in America and around the world can be traced back to this biblical doctrine, the heart of mankind is spiritually dead and unable to discern godly right from wrong. It's been inherited. Every single person. Once you were conceived, you were given a soul that was alienated from God, unable to do the will of God, unable to please God. And the symptoms of wickedness that we see all around us can be traced back to this, spiritually lifeless sinners. It says it very clearly, as I just stated, that this came when? When we were what? By nature. By nature, children of wrath. By nature, like the rest of mankind, inherited original sin. If you don't believe that, uh, let's grab a two-year-old and let's see if we put them in a room with another two-year-old and put one ball in there. I'll prove to you without even telling them how to sin. They don't need to be taught. They don't need to be trained. You don't have to sit down with your teenager and say, hey, son, uh, I'm going to teach you how to be disrespectful because I don't think you know how to do that yet. We don't teach people how to sin People sin because they are sinners. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, thus death entered the world. Romans 5.17 says, Through one man's trespass led condemnation to all. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all else. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. This is a heart problem. This is the desperate situation that mankind is in. Sinners. Unable to revive themselves. Unable to bring life to themselves. Notice also this, the conduct. The conduct of man. There's dead, lifeless sinners described for us, and this is the conduct by which they operate. And it's wrapped up in three phrases here in, a, in our text. I don't want to treat them all together just for the sake of time. It says this. Look at, look at what it says in verse 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Okay, what were you doing? This is the conduct. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Verse 3, carrying out the, desi the desires of the body and the mind. What were spiritually dead people doing? What are they doing? Well, they're doing only what they know, know how to do. They're doing what they only know what to do. They're following, as it says there, 
the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? It means that they're following a worldly system. They're following the culture. They're following entertainment. They're following social constructs. They're, uh, they're following trends of this world. They read their news. They read their Twitter. They read their Instagram. They listen to their friends. They do what the majority says. They, they do whatever educators said and politicians say and friends and movies and music. Whatever the world says, that's what they follow. Whatever the world values, they value. Whatever the world's into, they're into. Their authority is this world. Their leader is the prince of the power of the air. And they follow him. And I'll be personally that they do this, but they, uh, to Satan himself, but they, they follow the system that he has built. And he runs the world in a very organized, structured way very thought out plan a mastermind with all his demons a plan that looks pure on the outside it has lots of pleasure his worldly system is polished and it sounds eloquent and and necessary and it offers a a false hope and those who are without christ line up underneath this and follow it like sheep being led to the slaughter they follow they know no different. They know nothing else. The prince of the power of the air has them in his grip, following his path, doing his deeds, following the course of this world. And there is no escaping it because they're dead. Nothing within themselves to change it because they're lifeless. You say, why do they find follow so blindly look at second corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 i got it on the screen there it says this in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of christ who is the image of god isn't this helpful to us as we kind of survey the landscape of what america is in right now we kind of go what kind of a decision was that that decision couldn't be more wrong. How, how, is it, how is that even possible that that's the conclusion that you came up to as what's best for society? I take great comfort in knowing this, that sinners only know what to do, only know uh, what, or excuse me, sinners only do what sinners know how to do. They only know how to sin. They're dead in their trespasses and sin, and they're only going to do and follow what they think is best. But following what is best is not Christ, is not God and His Word. It's following the course and the patterns of this world, and they just line up underneath it. So, of course, what they do has nothing to do with Scripture. Of course, the world is trying to find answers to problems that has nothing to do with the Word of God because... They're dead in their trespasses and sin, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working within them. And they're blinded to the gospel. And until the king of kings captures their heart, they will continue to follow this destructive path that leads to forever separation from God in hell. Okay, Joe, that was a lot of bad news. You got any good news? Oh, man, I got some good news for you right now. 
Look at verse 4. What does it say? Verse 4. But God. But God. But God, being what? Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even, look, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. What did God do, as it says there? But God, this contrast here, something entirely opposite of, of what we just read is about to happen. And what happens is this, is that, that God sees our total inability to save ourselves. He, he looks down on mankind and he sees the sin with which they're walking in, the grip of sin that is upon them. He notices that. He sees that. And in his rich mercy, because of his great love, he initiates salvation. By grace, through faith. God, the creator of the universe, sees what, what, what is happening to mankind. He sees the desperate state that they're in. He does not just sit back and do nothing about it. Right? Sometimes we think, in regards to mercy, which we'll talk about here in a second, that, that mercy is noticing when somebody is in a pitiful state. Oh, look at them. Yeah, I feel bad for them. And then we do nothing about it. On with the day. Oh, look, there's somebody else. Feel bad for them too. Thankfully, that's not what God did. Thankfully, God does, does not look at, at the state that we are in, the, the fact that, that we need a new life, and just sit back and do nothing about it. In fact, he, he can't do that. Why? Because look at the motivations here. Why, why God can't do that? Because what? Number one, there's two things. Number one is this. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy, meaning this, that God saw the state that we were in, and it drove him to compassion for mankind, and he acted out on that compassion by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world, and then rising again on the third day. He saw the problem and he did something. And notice here too what the adjective that modifies mercy. What is it? He's what? Rich in mercy. Meaning this, that he is overflowing in this mercy. He is abundant in this mercy. It, it never runs out. The mercy of God never runs out. Like, like, a, like a cup of water that, that, that is not just filled to the brim, but one that is overflowing continually over the brim all the time. That is the mercy of God. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We sang the song, Praise the Lord, Praise the Lord. His mercy is more.
Secondly, there's this. Second motivator for God when he sees us in this state is this, a great love with which he loved us. God was moved to action when he sees mankind dead in their trespasses and sin following the prince of the power of the air that his great love would not allow him to sit back and do anything about it. It says there, because of his great love with which he loved us. This is not just any love. Paul found a word that, that he hoped that would best convey the kind of love that was necessary to save us, and it is great love. Countless love, boundless love, limitless love, undeserving love, a love that is deep and a love that is wide. And what's so amazing about this love of God that, that is poured out among sinners is that lifeless sinners have nothing that is attractive to God. The only thing that would be attractive to God is the fact that He can prove His love and mercy and forgiveness because of our sin. And I love this. It's very clear about when He loved us. Look at verse 4. It says, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. Verse 5, what does it say? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Romans 5, 8 says this, But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This Motivation of God, stepping in, initiating salvation on our behalf, leads us then to the second point, which is this, the saving action of God. Because of these things, the second half of verse 4 says this, that he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. He has made us alive together with Christ. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. This is why we make such a big deal about the resurrection. This is why we make such a big deal about Easter Sunday. This is why church was moved way, way, way back when, from Saturday to Sunday, so that we could celebrate this truth right here, that we have been made alive together with Christ. The greatest need of a dead man is to be made alive. The greatest need of a spiritually lifeless man is that he could be made alive. And this is exactly what Jesus does when he saves us. He makes us alive together with Christ. This verb make, made us alive, it's used 11 times in the New Testament. Ten of them have references that point back to one of the persons of the Trinity who has the ability to make us alive. It speaks of the spiritual life that's produced in the believer by God. Give you an example in John chapter 5 and verse 21. It says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. In John 6, 33, it says this, For the bread 
of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, it says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the heart of this morning. God makes the believer alive together with Christ. Christ died physically, we are dead spiritually, Christ was raised physically, and we were raised together with Christ spiritually. And as Christ lives, so we live. His resurrection is our resurrection. And we can have life because Jesus conquered death, was raised to life, He lives forevermore, and on the basis of His life, God raises us to a new life in Christ. And when he does that, raises us to, together in Christ, gives us life, what he gives us is a new start. He gives us a new life or a new birth. You hear that old phrase, are, are you born again? In fact, Jackson and I were driving in downtown Woodenville, and the guy had a sign up that said, Are you born again? I feel like, man, we have not heard that phrase in a really, really, really long time. Like, that's way back. That's pulling back from an era before my time, the 60s. Right, right, right back, back there of, of this phrase, Are you born again? Those who are alive in Christ are born again. You have a new life. A new start. When you are raised with Christ, you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sin. You're no longer held captive by your sin. You're no, uh, no longer held captive by the prince of the power of the air. We are no longer walking according to the desires of the world. No longer walking according to the reign of the prince of the power of the air. We are no longer spiritually dead. We are alive. And the hearts of our eyes, or the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened, as it says in Ephesians 1. Verse 17, because we are alive together with Christ, we can know God. We can understand God. We no longer have a desire for this world. Our purpose is no longer for ourselves. We live for God, and for the first time, we can set our affections on Jesus Christ. We desire Him. We love Him. We live for Him. We're set free, and our spiritual condition has been radically changed from death to life. We see things clearly. With fresh eyes, new eyes for God, a new lens by which we see the world and eternity. We are completely new because we're alive with Christ. And all of that, we did not earn. All of that is unmerited favor of God. Look back at verse 5. We're made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Unmerited favor of God that you did not earn 
and you do not deserve. What we deserve is to die in our sins and our trespasses. Yet you're saved. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by church attendance. You're not saved by doing good. You're not saved by giving to the poor. You're not saved by achievements. And you're not saved by just not committing the really, really bad sins. You're, you're saved by God's grace and His grace alone. You didn't do anything to earn salvation. You were completely dead and unable to offer anything. And just to make sure we, we understand that we're saved by grace, let's just keep reading here because the Apostle Paul wants to make this very clear to us. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And now he helps us understand it. It is, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. I don't know if you thought about this or not, but Christianity is the only, listen to this, the only religion in the world where you do nothing to earn salvation. Where God does everything. He offers the way. He gives the grace. He gifts you with the faith. Every aspect of salvation is of God. In every other religion, in every other religion, the gods want you to appease them, offer sacrifices to them, do something to earn their favor, some sort of human achievement, some, 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 some sort of human effort to be in the good graces of God so that when you die, you, you get placed into whatever heaven they have for you. Only Christianity says you're saved by grace. For example, Buddhists and Buddhism, and I'll just go through many of the four or five larger faiths here. Buddhism sees ignorance rather than sin as the roadblock to salvation. Therefore, for a Buddhist, salvation is gained through understanding the way things really are according to Buddha's dharma. It says this, once an individual has become enlightened, they can achieve a state of nirvana. Islam, the Quran, rejects the notion of repentance at all. And salvation depends entirely on man's actions and attitudes. Judaism, the Jews, your eternal existence is determined by moral behavior and attitudes. Perfection to the law, perfection to the Ten Commandments, religious law and tradition must be earned. Hinduism. Hinduism is a works-based salvation. Forgiveness of sin does not even fit into the picture of karma. Cause and effect. Each person has many lives in which they reach salvation so if it doesn't work out in the first life you get another chance in the second and the third and on and on and on and on and on in roman catholicism salvation is a process with many steps actual grace faith good works baptism participation in the sacraments penance indulgences 
keeping the commandments. Basically, salvation is attained through baptism and good works, and it's maintained by good works and participation in the sacraments. And if that doesn't pan out, there's purgatory to sort it all out there. Only, listen, only Christianity, only Christianity saves you by grace alone. No works, no merit. It's entirely of grace. It's not until you come to a point where you can say to yourself, man, I have nothing to offer you, God. I am spiritually bankrupt. I can boast about nothing within myself. I am held captive to my sin. Do you then begin to understand the grace of God in your life? And it says it very clearly. You've been saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no man may boast. Nobody's going to get to heaven. And they're going to say to God, man, I'm so good. I worked so hard to earn my salvation. Thank you for recognizing how hard I worked on earth to earn salvation from you. We're all going to get before the Lord, and we're going to fall down before Him, and we're going to just thank Him for the grace of God that He has given to us in spite of our efforts. You say, how can I access this grace? Well, the text tells us that as well, verse 8. By grace you have been saved, then what? Through what? Through faith. You want to access the grace of God in your life? You want to access the saving grace of God in your life? then you must believe. You must believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's Easter morning, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and saves and is saved. John 5, 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John, 8, 6, John, John 6, 40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will, here it is, I will raise Him up on the last day. And then lastly is this in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says this, Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This is the question that we have to answer for ourselves. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe 
that God in his power raised Christ from the dead and with that same power will raise your dead soul to life with Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that you can have the forgiveness of sins? And do you believe that this only happens because of the grace of God in your life and not of any merit on your own? Do you believe this? Would it be today that you have a new life in Christ? Would it be today that you not only just kind of talk around who Jesus is and talk around what heaven is and hell is and what sin is and what's going on, but that you actually take the time and the responsibility upon yourself to believe in Jesus. That He is your Savior and Lord. This is why Jesus came. This is why He died on the cross. This is why He rose again. He did not die on the cross so that America after over time we'd have this great wonderful weekend and we'd all get together and be a big holiday and we'd all enjoy all these great things about about Easter he died so that you could have life forever that's the resurrection that's why we celebrate because Christ lives I live and his resurrected body gives me a living hope for eternity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We really do, Lord. We don't just want to say that. We are truly thankful for the word of God. It's not always encouraging if ever encouraging to read verses that remind us that we are sinners that we have done wrong that we have fallen short of the glory of God but it is healthy and it is good for us to be reminded of that so that we can celebrate salvation in Jesus Christ to understand the good news we have to be aware of the bad news. For the gospel to be good, we need to recognize the state that we are in and the salvation that is offered to us by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. And it truly is good news that you have made us alive together with Christ that by the power of the resurrection, you will raise us up to new life forever. And you will seat us in heaven. Father, may we believe this with our whole heart. Lord, help us to grasp the depth of your grace. 
And the overflow of that, of that will be that we will do good works that you have prepared beforehand. The overflow of understanding that grace will be that we will lift high your name in song. We will serve others. We will love others. We will evangelize. The overflow of understanding the grace of God touches everything. And all of that can only happen because of the empty tomb. And so we celebrate that and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.